0: Today's reading comes from Mark 14, verses 43 to 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked.
1: Amen, thank you, Michael. For those of you who do not know, Michael is one of our deacons here at New Life Church. And uh, without him, we would not have been able to live stream, set up the cameras, run all the things that our media team does, as well as so many other things that, that him and the rest of the diaconate do, do for our church. So we're definitely indebted to him. Um, well, this morning, as you heard, we are continuing to walk through the gospel of Mark. And as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, we're actually kind of starting what's known as the Lenten season, you could say a a bit early. Because Lent just comes from the word for for lengthen, right, to lengthen, and it just refers to spring as the day's lengthen in sunlight. And as that leads us to this journey to Easter. And so it's tradition, right, for churches to kind of look at Jesus' last view of his life leading up to Easter, and we'll be spending these next few weeks leading up to Easter continuing to walk through the Gospel of Mark, and as it turns out, as it works out well for us, we'll be walking through these last few days of Jesus's life. And as we looked at last week, Jesus is beginning his, his passion, that is his suffering. It begins in a garden where he agonizes over the anxiety and anticipation of what's about to come. And today, as you've just heard read, he then begins to experience that suffering. That it starts with the betrayal of his enemies, his friends, as he moves into suffering. But what you have to understand Is Jesus used this phrase in our text, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. That every little detail that Jesus walks through his entire life, but particularly in these last few hours of his life, every little detail is to fulfill a prophecy or to redeem mankind in some kind of way. You see, because Jesus isn't just dying for us, but he's also living for us. And so it's no coincidence that at the moment for Jesus to finally accomplish his redemption, he finds himself basically back at the beginning where this whole project of humanity started and went astray, and that's in a garden. In a garden where there's a test, and it's a pass-fail test Will he obediently walk in line of the words that we looked at last week he prayed father not my will but thy will but not only is this a test for Jesus because of course I mean there's no spoiler alerts here right we all know how the story turns out of course he will but you see the test Jesus made clear was also a test for each one of his disciples for every single person listed in this story This test, Jesus even foretold. He said, you're going to be tested. When they prayed in the garden, he said, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And so it begs the question, why would all of the writers of the gospel go out of their way to humiliate themselves by writing down how they all failed miserably? Why would they go out of their way, you know, to point out what maybe was a weird line when you heard, Right at the end, it says a young man with nothing but a linen cloth about his body was following them and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked, right? You know, I'm sure there's a pastor joke in here somewhere about the first streaker and something like that, but it's been a long weekend and my pastor jokes are gone right now, so I'll spare you. But why put that detail in here? What does that have to do with anything that Jesus is about to go through? Like, why don't we get to the the highlights? You know, there's, there's limited space. Why include these humiliating details? Well, I think to answer this, we're gonna look at three things that Jesus does. That how Jesus embarks on this test in the garden, contrasted with how his disciples from Judas to Peter to the rest of them who all fled to whoever this mysterious young man is, how do they all stack up against this test? What does this reveal about our own hearts? And how, of course, everything we go through is our own particular tests in the garden, our own particular ways of dealing with life when darkness sets in, when things get chaotic and we're seeking control, we're seeking to make life work. So the three things we'll look at is first, the question that Jesus asks these men. Interesting. Of all the things that could happen in the garden here, he's going to ask a question. The second thing is, we'll actually see Jesus is the only one to really answer. He's the one who responds. And then third, we'll look at the freedom, then, that Jesus provides. So those are our three headings. The question Jesus asks, early in this passage. The response that Jesus gives. And then the freedom that Jesus provides. So let's dive into that first one, then. The question that Jesus asks. Because remember, why, why is this story here? Why include these humiliating details? And to unravel that, we'll look at, well, let's, how does this start off? Because there's a lot made over Jesus's question of why do you come at me, right? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And notice before that it said, it points out a crowd with him comes with Judas the betrayer with swords and clubs. And then Peter, right? As we'll, we'll know from other recordings, though he's not named here, draws his sword. And so there's a lot of talk of swords in this passage, but I, I guess to further it, why, why, does Judas have this secret sign? Like, why don't they just roll up since you have, an, you know, a brigade with you basically? Why not just roll up and be like, "There he is." And you're like, "Oh, well, it's dark. It's the first century. You know, lights hard to come by." Well, I mean, they they have they have torches available, right? And there is stars and and light at night. And so sure, maybe it would have been hard, but I I think it's deeper than that. I think Jesus's question gets at the very reason that they come with swords and clubs and that they have this secret, you know, here's how we're going to identify Jesus, is that they expected a fight. They expected resistance. That's why he's even like, look, we'll have like a secret sign. So that when we come up, you'll be, you, 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 we'll sneak on him, right? After all, Jesus has been kind of slippery before. When mobs have tried to capture him, he's gotten away. And maybe they kind of know, like, ah, Jesus is good. He's getting out of mobs. So if we corner him, how do we make sure we don't get after him? We'll sneak attack, right? So there's, there's this strategy. There's this plot. But all of it is they expect Jesus to be violent, After all, I mean, didn't he just drive some people out of the temple with a, you know, a whip made of cords? And hasn't he, you know, Judas saw him curse a fig tree? So they're expecting Jesus, who's talked all about the kingdom of God, to put up resistance. Because he's finally come to inaugurate that kingdom. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows this is the make-or-break moment. Jesus will either become king or they'll put him to death so that he can't lead a rebellion anymore. And, of course, the irony is this is exactly how Jesus is going to become king because they thought it would be a kingdom just like the other kingdoms of the world, a kingdom of power, where ultimately the way you win is just to have more power than the other people. And... So for them, it was a matter of let's make sure we have more power than Jesus. And as he's a threat to our power, make sure that we squash that threat. Now that makes sense. Of course, you'd expect Jesus's enemies to think that way. And that's why he says, like, I mean, I've been out there all this time. You could have come at me any time. You know, but, but... you know, Jesus obviously doesn't give him the, if you come at the king, best not miss speech. Instead, it's a, why, why do you come at me with swords and clubs? That, what did you think I was doing here? And so he's exposing what they think his kingdom's all about. But it's not just Judas who comes with swords and clubs. We see Peter as well. Fall into the same paradigm. That Peter also thinks in terms of power. And that the way the kingdom of God is going to happen is we also need to have more power than them. And so now it's just a struggle of power. Now we've seen this with Peter and with all the disciples, you know, but, but this is kind of coming from Peter's perspective. And so he's, he's bold enough to confess his sins and not the sins of the other disciples. So God bless him for that. But he, he, he tells us in Luke chapter nine, we read the story about Peter, you know, they kind of have their feelings hurt When they go through a town and no one, no one like appreciates them enough, you know they don't believe the gospel message, and so they're walking away. And Peter's like, you know, there's this one time in the Old Testament where they call down fire. We could try that. And Jesus, of course, is like, oh my gosh, you're still not getting it. No, we're not going to, you know, I mean, talk about canceling somebody. We're not going to call down fire right on this town just because they didn't believe in me. Like it's. It's a sad state, but that's not how we're going to respond. Furthermore, just before this, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus, remember, is telling them, a test is coming, and it's going to be really, really difficult. And it's so difficult, it's going to be like this. And this is what he reads to them. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors, for it was written about me has its fulfillment." And so he's giving this imagery of like, it's gonna get so hard out there, it'd be better to have a sword than a cloak. But Peter takes it literally. And so Peter says, and well, and all of them said, they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, that's enough. And it's not that that's enough swords, like we only need two. He's like, that's enough of this conversation. You clearly aren't getting it. And we get this picture in Matthew 26. Jesus says to him, and again, he's talking to Peter now, after Peter takes his sword out and cuts off the ear of the high priest. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now, I I try not to disagree with Jesus, but I have to ask this question. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, really? There's a lot of people who make sure they don't die by the sword by wielding the sword and just having a bigger, more powerful sword. And that's how you make sure someone with lesser swords can't put you on the wrong end of the sword. And there's lots of evidence today and throughout all of history about how what Jesus says here isn't exactly true. So if that's the case, then it must be talking about something else. He's talking about not just swords as in, political, military violence, though it includes that. But he's talking about swords as in the way to make life work is resorting to the tactics of power that all of us resort to. And we see that, that in Jesus' own camp, the people who were against him and the people who were for him, neither were actually living the way Jesus would call them to live. And we have to take this to heart as a question for all of us, that Peter fails the test, right, as he falls asleep praying with Jesus, as he resorts to violence trying to defend Jesus, and as we'll look at next week as he resorts to then, of course, denying Jesus We see all the disciples fled. All the disciples failed this test because they all thought in terms of the same power dynamics that the world thinks in. So, what does Jesus mean by the sword? His question is not just a backhanded way of saying, You cowards, you couldn't do this during the day, you know? Instead, Jesus' question exposes where we think the power to live out the kingdom of God really lies. So, What are the swords that you reach for when the darkness sets in and things seem to get out of control? I mean, there's the easy ones, you know, money, pleasure, power, influence, celebrity, all the things that we use to make life work. But a way to ask yourself this question is not just to think what is best about life that you go after as your swords, but, What's your greatest nightmare? And in that scenario, what do you reach for? What do you reach for to gain control? What do you reach for to cope, to be comforted? It's different for lots of us, even though there's there's common themes, but all of us have a way that's immediately antithetical to the way Jesus says, Here's how we live under the new administration of the kingdom of God. I mean, it is a sad irony that Peter, in his attempts to defend Jesus bringing the kingdom of God, actually works against the values of the kingdom of God. What, 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 what are those values? I mean, after all, all kingdoms, all administrations, right, have a set of values, things that they prioritize, and I'm not just saying the, the things that get written up in the value statement, okay? I'm saying the things that are actually valued. You know, there's this great article from the Harvard Business Review, and uh, in there, Patrick Lencioni writes um, about value statements and just how awful they can be at corporations. He, he writes about one, he says this. He says, uh, take a look at this list of corporate values. Communication, respect, integrity, excellence, sound pretty good, don't they? Strong, concise, meaningful, maybe they even resemble some of your company's values, the ones you spent so much time writing, debating, revising. If so, you should be a little nervous because these are the same corporate values of Enron as stated in the company's 2000 annual report. Right? and for those of you who are, I guess, under the age of 30, and don't have any idea what Enron is, <laughs> it was basically a corrupt corporation that had these great values. You know, he says, I, I once asked the CEO of a Fortune 500 networking company to tell me one of his firm's core values. And he replied, a sense of urgency, without hesitation. So I asked, your employees take quick actions and hit all their deadlines then? He goes, no, of course not. They're complacent as, well, I'll censor this, which is why we need to make urgency one of our core values, right? And, and of course, that kind of thing makes all of us cynics, right? Like, oh yeah, of course that's what we value. Or like, yeah, we value integrity until like, you know, it's the end of the month and you gotta hit those sales numbers, and so maybe you bend a little bit on the integrity. Or yes, we value being, we value being kind in our family. But when we're running late and shoes have gone missing for the millionth time, maybe you light a little fire under somebody by not being so kind. It's like, what what are your actual values are? And Jesus says his actual values are, well, he lists them in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. His value statement. You know, of course, Jesus breaks some of the rules, right? You're only supposed to have like three to five core values. But Jesus' ultimately core value is, look, our kingdom is totally upside down from all the values of the other kingdoms of this world. It's totally upside down. We flip the whole script, And notice, as he says, did you come out against me as against a robber? That word is kind of tricky to translate because you may see some translations say "a revolutionary. And in both cases, the the term is correct because this idea that you're trying to seize something, you're trying to take something, and whether that's just stealing petty things or whether that's trying to seize power, the term was used kind of across the spectrum in that way. And Jesus doesn't deny that he's a revolutionary or that he is here to take things and change them and flip everything upside down. Jesus never denies that. But I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. Jesus doesn't just want a new set of people in power. He wants a new power in power, a new power at work in the world a totally different set of values. Because after all, what, what is the power struggle between all nations, right? I mean, the, who, who, who has not been fascinated by the Chinese spy balloon, okay? Right? It's brought out, right? Or who has not been keyed into, we're coming up in the anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. We have all these displays of power at work. And ultimately, it's just a competition of who will be in power. And look, I do have some rooting interests, and I do think there are better people to be in power than other people. And I do think that God has given government-sanctioned power. But ultimately, as Christians, the way we bring in the kingdom of God is not through the power that the world seeks, the power to compel and to control and to cope. Instead, our values are totally different. We will have a new power in power. And the objection here is right away, Who could actually live like that? Who could live like that? How are the Ukrainians supposed to turn the other cheek? Who could live like this? Jesus can't really expect this of me. I would be taken advantage of. I would never make it. You can't actually live like this and make it in society today. So let's just separate this somehow then. Well, then, of course, we fall right into the same trap Peter falls into. It's like, look, you can't make it like this, and so we all reach for our swords. Whatever that sword may be for you, when the darkness sets in, when the test really heats up, we all reach for a different sword than Jesus, unfortunately, in so many ways. And so what is it that you reach for? What is it that you use to control situations, or that you use to cope with? So that brings us to our second question then, and that is the response that Jesus gives. You see, because if the question that Jesus asks is all about revealing a new kind of power that he brings, that it's not just he's going to be the next Caesar, but he wants a different power than the one Caesar even wields himself to rule and reign in his kingdom and in the world. That heaven is coming to earth and it's totally different from all the values of us, our our worldly kingdoms. Where power and celebrity and possessions and money are treasured above all. And that's how you control and cope and make things work. Instead, Jesus reveals that he brings a new kind of power And in his response, we see it demonstrated. There's a few things that happen that we can kind of pull from the other Gospels to get a picture of how Jesus was responding in the garden. We won't look at all of them. But the thing that I find most fascinating is that it's hard not to immediately remember in Matthew 26, as they tell this story of Judas betraying Jesus, The last words Judas would have ever heard Jesus say is he would have heard Jesus calling him a friend. He said, what have you come to do, friend? Now, of course, Jesus knows the answer to that question, and so it's not a question for Jesus, it's a question for Judas. And as Pastor Jeff explained over and over in his sermon on the betrayal of Judas Jesus is giving him chance after chance, trying to help him awaken to the evil that he is about to run into. And even at the very last moment, his first response is not to reach for a sword, but it's to reach for reconciliation. And then the next thing we see is how does Jesus treat the man who had his ears cut off? We know this man's name is Malchus, we're, we're told in, in John 18, and we're told that Jesus healed him in Luke 22 you know, which is says he touched his ear. And you just look at the stunning difference. Again, rather than reach for a sword, he reaches out for healing. I mean, this just reminds me of, you know, because I'm, I'm a nerd, right? Tolkien's description in The Lord of the Rings of the true king is the king who has the hands of healing. And then i will be the king who heals the land. And even in the moment of darkness and betrayal and chaos, Jesus is reaching to heal. But then we see his response. He says, let the scripture be fulfilled. And I think it's easy for us to rush over to Easter and go, look at the power Jesus displays rising from the dead and miss the power that Jesus displays and resisting unleashing death on these men right here in front of them. I mean you, you heard it in, in Matthew 26. He says, Don't you know? Like, like I, I love the idea of him looking at Peter, you know, who's been walking around with a sword on, apparently like all big and cool. And since they, you know, we're going to pray, oh, I need my sword, going to pray. Like it just, it's a little ridiculous, of course. And and then he pulls for it and you could just hear it come through, like, Peter bro, if we were going to fight these guys, you're not the army I'd call. Just going to be honest with you, I got a better one. And if I needed those guys to roll up right now and squash this crowd, I would. But Jesus doesn't display his power just through rising, but he also displays his power and restraining it. I mean, after all, that is the strength of Jesus taking on weakness by even becoming human in the first place. And then at his most dire moment, when he could call the angels, the legions, to just appear, he restrains, he resists. And Jesus fulfills all of his kingdom's core values. You know, if we just looked back through the list, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This has been Jesus' story in the garden so far. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus embodies all of that right here in this moment. As he would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, who stood there with the sword, recounts this moment in his letter, and he writes this. He says, "'For to this you have been called, "'because Christ also suffered for you, "'leaving an example, "'so that you might follow in his steps.'" He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls when the pressure was on judas he betrayed jesus when the pressure was on peter he betrayed the values that jesus tried to instill in him but when the pressure was on jesus he fulfilled everything perfectly we're, we're told everyone abandons him. Everyone fails the test. And in this garden, there is one man who stands alone, passing the test. And as Peter recounts all the ways in which he fulfilled his own kingdom values, he did it for you. He says, He did this, he was made sin so that we could be healed. So that we could begin to understand through Jesus' demonstration of a new power, how that would begin to set us free as well. You see, Jesus would go on to actually be the robber they're accusing him of. Because it would say later in Mark 15 that he was crucified between two, and it's the exact same word here, two robbers, that Jesus would take on our curse so that we could actually be set free to live in light of a new power dynamic. You know, in Psalm chapter 2, we're told this. We're told this about God's king. We're told, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right, so the the kingdoms of earth raging against the kingdom of heaven. They want to live with a different power dynamic than the one that the kingdom of heaven would have. It goes on to say, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten of you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You see, we think that this psalm too would be read at every king's coronation. But of course, the ultimate king is the one of whom this is read. This is my son with whom I am well pleased, Jesus. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And look at the irony here. Kiss the son. You see, Judas would kiss the son to betray him so that he might gain the power and the status that this world offers. You see, we're told that we get to take refuge in this king, that we get to kiss the son, as it were. Now, you may think, well, doesn't that just sound like just a different way to be in power? That Jesus is, well, he's just the other king we should be afraid of now. That instead of being afraid of man, be afraid of God. Well, I I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's less than that. I think it's much more than that. I think that as we reflect on our own lives, we have to bring into this, this picture of ourselves that's brought in, like, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I only have that memorized because the VBS song, all right? Well, why, why does he list those? I mean, think of that imagery. When you, when you crack open a fruit, when you juice a fruit, when you squeeze a fruit, what comes out? Well, it should be the, that, that fruit's juice, you see the question is for all of us is the same when we're squeezed when we're pressed what comes out is it the values of the kingdom or is it the values of the world Now C.S. Lewis kind of takes that test a little bit further he says if you really want to know you don't do it you know planned you have to do it by surprise and he uses this illustration he goes if you want to know if there's rats in the basement what do you got to do you don't open the door turn on the lights any rats down there? I'm coming to see if there's any rats, right? That's how you play hide and seek with five-year-olds. No, instead, you gotta bust open the door, run down the stairs with and get them, try and surprise them to see what's really down here, because that's the only way to know what truly comes out. And the same is true for all of our lives. In those moments of surprise, what comes out? Do you respond with love to your family? Do you respond with love to your coworkers? Is it the values of the kingdom, or is it a different set of values? The same values that everyone else in the world lives by. And what Peter and Judas show us is that whether you're for Jesus or against Jesus, you could still betray Jesus and his values. But thankfully, Jesus provides a much greater freedom for us. Jesus provides a freedom to actually live in light of this power that he's demonstrated. You see, and that's where we get this little line of this weird young man in the linen cloth who runs away. And I, I understand there's, there's a bit of a pun probably at play here, like living in freedom, right? He was free, and sure it was, but um, free of all clothing. But the best guess, right, everything that leads us to believe is that this is actually Mark writing himself here and saying, I'm the young man who's here. I fled. After all, who else would know this story if not Mark? Everyone else has fled. Everyone else has dashed. You're running for your life. Maybe you notice out of the corner of your eye the naked guy, right? But really, I think we have Mark putting this in here. And this gets back to where we started. Why would the disciples write this down? Why would all the gospel writers include this humiliating event of Jesus' followers? The guys who are going to go be the the leaders of this new movement, why would they humiliate themselves in this way? Showing that in Jesus' worst moment, they didn't stand with him. They fled. And one of them fled naked. Well, again, it takes us back to that picture of the garden. Adam and Eve, when they failed, what did they realize? They were naked and ashamed. And here's this man who is naked and ashamed, but that is not where he stayed. Because he understood that Jesus was the one who fulfilled everything for him. That stood in his place. He now is able to stand in the place of Jesus, bearing everything for us to see. I love the way Scott Saul's put this, is that what Mark does here for us is he gives us an example of how the church basement is really what the church sanctuary should be like. That is the church basement where the AA meetings happen, where the the NA meetings happen, where the Celebrate Recovery meetings happen, where you confess how you are powerless over the things that have mastered you whether that's an addiction or whether that's just the values of this world and how you're held captive to the same powers and pleasures and allure of celebrity like everyone else, and that those things have mastered you. But it's also where you find others who can empathize with that. And who more can empathize with our weaknesses than Jesus himself? And that then sets us free from those those powers having power over us. And that new power that Jesus wants to be in power, right, can actually begin to reign in our hearts and begin to take the place of the powers that would rule us, begin to change us into people of love like Jesus. The people who, when we do get surprised, can maybe respond with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and not respond by being controlling, by seeking power, by coping with other things. That Mark understood how Jesus had stood in his place and set him free, that Mark can now tell you the worst things about his life. He can take you into the church basement of his own soul and invites you into that same freedom. So you see, when you're invited to to take part in these small groups, we want them to be, as we say in New Life 101, we want them to be like the hospital waiting room, not the interview waiting room. You know, where you walked in, and maybe you did this in the church parking lot. Whose cars were around here, and where do you kind of rank up, and whose clothes are around here, and how do you rank up? But instead, you could be set free from that. To say, yeah, what are you here for? Oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you. I got this, this, and this. Like, The values are flipped totally upside down from one to the other. We are set free to live under Jesus' power. And that's the invitation that we all have. So when we're told to kiss the sun, to bow before this king, we do so not because we're just terrified that this new king will get us, but we do it because this new king lived for us and died for us and demonstrated a new power. So let's pray. Father, we come before you now asking that you would help us to live in light of this new power. As we fully and freely admit, we're, we're a church full of hypocrites, that just like Peter, we reach for the swords of this world to cope, to control. God, we, we, we are just like the Enrons and the corporations and all the other churches that we hear so often of how we betray the very values of the kingdom. So have mercy on us, Lord. Help us to repent, Father, to run to you for the new power that you demonstrated. And may it rule and reign in our hearts for your glory. Amen.